The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. Like Kyle said, we are in John 7. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Um, If you're new here and you don't have a Bible, feel free to take a Bible home with you. I guess even if you're not new here and you don't have a Bible. Okay, John 7, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kaylee, good morning, Park Church. See you all, God's frozen chosen this morning. <laughs> Told the first service, I've been waiting 30 years to say that. One of my pastors growing up, that was like his go-to line for like a little stiff, like frozen chosen. Here we are, finally got a, got a chance. Um, thanks for, for gathering with us. I know it's cold out, and a little bit in. I, I can feel when someone walks in because like the, the draft comes under the, the pews and you're just like whoosh, the rush of cold under the, the legs. Um, my name is Neil, serve as one of the pastors here, and we are in the second week of a four-week series um, on living as God's family. Um, typically, our approach is to walk through a book of the Bible, um, so we'll be starting uh, 1 Corinthians here in just a few weeks, and that'll take us through um, the spring semester, 
and then we'll uh, finish up the, the Psalms over the summer, and then back to 1 Corinthians in the fall as well. Uh, but we have found this new rhythm over the past few years uh, to be really helpful and fruitful for us as a people, where we say, yes, we need a steady diet of scripture. Like we're, we're just not like smart enough to come up with the topics and the themes and whatever else. Like we need God to lead us through his word. We're gonna bump into things we don't expect to, that we don't necessarily like all the time, but we need it. Like all of God's word is, is good for us to, to nourish us and, and lead us. Um, but also we, we can discern different things as a leadership team and throughout our church of, hey, here are different pastoral themes or issues or topics that, that it would be good for us to, to kind of hone in on for a little bit talk about from scripture, from the way of Jesus, and, and be invited into in very particular ways, a little bit more practice oriented, um, and do that a couple times a year. So that's, that's where these series come out. Um, we did a Be With Jesus uh, series last fall, and now this is a, a Follow His Way of Life. The way we understand discipleship is that, that we're reconciled to God by grace through faith, and we're learning to be with Jesus and to follow His way of life. That, that is the, the expression of, of being a disciple of Jesus. And so we're, we're here focused on living as God's family. Um, before we, we, we dive in uh, to this in particular, I want to mention two things. One, we have the, the privilege of welcoming some from the migrant community uh, to worship with us on Sundays. Uh, so uh, folks who, who have found their way to Denver uh, through different means over the past days or weeks or months, um, and, uh, you know, throughout the week have been in this building, but also we've just been able to connect with them as a broader church family and are, are here um, with us on, on, on Sunday. So we're just say welcome. I'm just so grateful that you're here. Um, and we have begun Spanish translation for this service, for the 11 a.m. service, um, starting today. Uh, we, we tried to piece it together last week and kind of did it for the nine um, as, a, as a last minute thing. But we have Carlos Aguilar uh, one of our members um, does this professionally and is, is lending us some equipment as we kind of get our feet underneath us a little bit um, and is putting together a team. And so really two things. One, to be aware that uh, this is what we're doing for the 11 a.m. service moving forward. And so whether that's something that, that you want to take advantage of or invite other people into uh, to benefit from, uh, please do. We'll have a table in the, the front uh, foyer as you're coming in to grab one of the, the receivers. Uh, but then second, um, we're, we're still looking to build, Carlos is building this team of people who can do simultaneous live translation. Um, you know, it is a, it is a unique and, and trained skill that, that, that comes at Carlos, and I know some others in our church uh, have, have voiced, like, hey, I've done this before. Maybe, maybe it's a little rusty, like maybe I need to, uh, to practice, practice it again. Uh, but we are looking for a team. We, have, we had two, but then someone after the 9 a.m. approached me. Now we have three people on this team. We'd love to get at least four uh, maybe five, uh, just so we can have somewhat of a, a rotation. Um, so if you have experience doing that, have any interest in being a part of this team, uh, please find myself or Carlos or one of us. We'd love to get you connected. Or if you are fluent in Spanish and say, hey, that, that's something I may be interested in, in learning to do. Um, Carlos, like I said, does this professionally. He has trained people in it and would love to, to spend some time with you if that's something you're interested in doing. Um, so please make note of that. Second, uh, this is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Tomorrow we celebrate, um, in particular, his life, his leadership, his ministry. And so it, it's, it's worth us taking a moment to pause and to recognize how this man who loved God deeply, who loved the gospel and, and preached it faithfully, and as, as he pursued Jesus and as his community did, was led to, to push against 
uh, the very clear injustice that was, was all around them and, and, and throughout our country in many, many spaces. But here's a man who, who loved God's heart for justice, uh, who was marked by compassion, who sought unity, and really in line with where we're going this morning, uh, moved out into a very anxious society, a very anxious culture as a person uh, who spoke truth and did it with love. And the disruption that came, he, he was willing to absorb in himself imaging Jesus in really faithful ways. And it brought renewal and it brought healing in really particular ways that we still feel the effects of. We still need more, but feel the effects of even today through his leadership. So it's worth us uh, just taking a moment to, to pause even this weekend uh, to recognize this is a man who, who, whose life is, is worthy of honor and, and in so many ways is worthy of, of emulation. Um, so let me, let, me, let me pray for us now and we will... Uh, get into our theme for this morning. Uh, Father, thank you that you are a good father. A good father. Even just coming off of last week, recognizing that we've, we've all been shaped in different ways with uh, you being imaged to us in some really faithful ways, but also some ways that we're, we're skewed. We're just not, not actually representing who you are. And we, we need healing. We need to, to learn to have our, our hearts be tuned to, to hear your voice above all the other messages that, that so often can, can flood our hearts and our minds. So, so would, you, would you make us receptive, maybe in some new ways this morning, to, uh, to be honest before you, to allow the, the light of your presence to shine in the different areas of our lives and our relationships? And to hear your invitation, to receive your invitation, uh, to come before you, uh, to, to be known by you, to receive the love that is, is pursuing us even now, that, that perseveres even in the most painful, difficult moments and seasons. Uh, this is what we long for. You are who we long for. And so would you give us hearts and minds that are able to receive you today. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, Jason uh, introduced the series around family systems, and more broadly, this idea of, of systems theory. And re- really, it's, the, it's the, the idea that we all feel the effects of, that we are formed and shaped in the relational systems that we grow up in. So some sort of family dynamics, family system, it looks different for all of us in different ways and maybe in different seasons as we grew up, it shifted. But we learned, how do we navigate the world in front of us? We learned it in a particular relational context. Uh, Certain patterns, certain responses, how do you communicate? What do you do with conflict? What do you do with pain and difficulty? How how do you steward the things of life? Uh, All of that was kind of passed down onto us in what was imaged to us, what we saw, what, what, what we felt, what we experienced relationally. And, and we're, we're somehow the products of those systems. Like we show up in relationships, we show up with other people, and, and we, we have these learned patterns and reactions and responses that we come to the table with. Now, when we come and we, we meet Jesus, and the scriptures are so clear that he brings us into a new family. It's not that biological family doesn't matter. It's very significant. It's often is a, is a means of, of tremendous gift, um, but also at times a lot of pain. But in this new family, God is actually teaching us a new way to relate to one another. 
and it takes time. As Peace Cazero said, Jesus may be in your hearts, but grandpa's in your bones. It's like we have these like deeply seated patterns and, 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 and ways of reacting to things that, that come out. And some are good. And some are, are really, really not good, at least when we're, we're honest about it. But what, what, what are we talking about with systems? Uh, Jason put this uh, quote up on the, the screen last time. I want to use it again. Um, Systems are defined as meaningful holes that are maintained by the interaction of their parts. So there is a hole, but the only way you can understand the hole is by the, the different components, the different parts of it, and how they relate to one another. So Jason, uh, to quote our, our own beloved Jason Jones, um, he, he pulled this together in his own definition. Systems are two or more parts interacting with one another through their behavior to maintain a reinforcing loop. And I think that, that last part is so operative for us to understand how the different reactions that are taking place, the different interactions that are taking place, create this loop where there's a, there's a nearly constant reaction and response back and forth. And that, that creates, on the whole, this system. So, thinking about systems. This is not so much a relational system, but in some ways it is. But think about... Uh, driving on I-25, whatever highway, you know, creates the, the most frustration for you. For me, we're Southeast Denver, so like a lot of time on I-25 coming up here. Um, yeah, I, I feel like we, in driving, I, I've heard it said before that if you really want to know like your heart response to things, what do you do when people frustrate you on the road? Because it's a more honest expression of what you, you kind of want to say and do maybe. Um, but it feels easier to do it to like a metal box on wheels than it is to a real human. So you we like forget that there's like flesh and blood inside of those metal boxes on wheels. Um, but I don't know if you have similar experience, but can be driving on I-25 and the traffic is horrendous. I'm like, oh man, I'm so eager to find out like what created this. Like eventually I'm going to get past it and I'm going I'm to see, you know, if I don't use ways and find some back roads or whatever, it's like, I'm going to stick through it. I'm going to persevere. I'm so interested to see like what, what caused it. And a lot of times you get to the front of the line and there's nothing. Like nothing. All it is is people just like you saying, oh, I guess we can go now. And they just like hit the accelerator and they're going. But, but, but all the cars had like come to a basic halt and then all of a sudden, I guess they're, they're now free to start going. At some point, maybe it was 20 minutes ago, maybe it was an hour ago, some event happened. Maybe it was an intense merge lane. Maybe it was an accident on their side. Maybe it was the, the rubbernecking from the accident on the other side. You know, people are just like turning, so they break a little bit, break a little bit. But, but something happened in that system that sent a series of reactions all the way down such that other people who were not even connected to that event were being affected by it. They were feeling the effects of it and having to respond to it. Or to get into a system that's a little more relational. My wife and I, you know, at times we'll, we'll dip into the, the Netflix series, The Crown. And we watched not too long ago um, the one where Princess Diana does the, the BBC panorama interview. Basically, she like outs the whole family. And it was, it was kind of like uh, the final nail in the coffin kind of sealed her fate, at least on, on their estimation of things. Um, but she's very honest, just very honest about her own struggles, about her own life, and, and, and kind of what was it like to be part of the royal family. And I don't, I don't think that she actually said this in the real interview, but the Crown's literary license 
had her say this in the, in the series, and I thought it was insightful. She said, I didn't just marry into a family. I married into a system. And what she was describing was, this was not just, hey, I've got a marriage and a husband, and then we got a couple boys, and there's kind of, you know, mom-in-law or whatever else. Like, no, mom-in-law's the queen. And it turns out there are a lot of assumptions and expectations about how you're going to live your life. You are constantly put on display, and there are strong opinions that will be enforced about how you present yourself. There are certain things that are inbounds, there are certain things that are out of bounds, and you kind of need to to go along if this is going to work. And what she described back in the mid-90s, I think is, it's true wherever we go on a lesser scale, but I think it's it's actually more escalated through just how public the personas are that we're, we're expected to maintain. You know, think about how, how often it's been described that the Western society uh, can be described as a, as a platform culture. That constantly they're, they're, we're expected to have platforms where we, we kind of perform and present and become in order to be approved of and received, to be accepted in all the different ways. That is a relational system that is marked by a particular kind of anxiety that says, these are the rules, you need to play by them. If not, you're out. So, relational systems marked by an ambient anxiety and at certain times really, really acute. How do we do at navigating and orienting ourselves through these systems? I would venture to say often not that well. I wonder if this, this meme has any uh, relation to you. Please behave better so that I can calm down. Maybe, maybe none of us have... Um, literally said this. I think some of us probably have or some variation of it. But we live with this assumption so often, it's like, hey, if, if that person could just like get it together, then I can be okay. Hey, if you would just like stop doing that or like you would calm down or you would like quit beating up on your brother, like I'll be okay. Like I, my internal state can then be okay if just my external realities, you know, all these other people, if they can just get it together. And we see, we see this anxiety go all the way back to the garden precisely because we were made for relationship as individuals. And many would describe that the, the anxiety that we feel, it's at this tension point of wanting to be an individual, which is good. God has made us that way. Made us to, to image him, to represent him, to show the world's aspects of his character, to have an identity, particular wiring. But then also at the same time to be together in community with others, an individual together with others. And at this tension point is where the anxiety is just shot through our relationships. We're constantly kind of navigating like, who am I? How do I make sense of that? How much does my community tell me who I am and how much do I need to like strike out on my own but I still need relationship? And (laughs) we're trying to navigate all of those different tension points with this anxiety. And that's how God established it in the very beginning. But of course, we, we broke the fundamental relationship with God by, by, by trying to chart our own course. And to say, no longer are you going to define who I am. No longer are you going to tell me what relationships are for. No longer are you going to tell me what my identity is. I'm going to define that for myself. I'm, I'm going to define what joy and satisfaction and life really are. And that broke the system, introducing anxiety into it. Mark Sayers put it this way. 
Sin is at the root of our anxiety, our toxic emotions, and our systems that trend toward dysfunction. The result of sin is the, is the withdrawal of God's presence. For he is a holy God, the ultimate standard of good, righteousness, and justice. He cannot countenance compromise with sin. Adam's and Eve's decision in the garden to go it alone resulted in the fall of humanity. The result of this fall was a thick and sticky stream of anxiety that runs through human history, oozing into our lived experience. The root of our emotional toxicity, our deep anxiety, and our fears lies in the absence of his presence. It might be easy for us to say, I don't, I don't know if anxiety, like where does that, where does that land for me? I, I think sometimes we too narrowly define anxiety. We need to understand how this tension of, of trying to be an individual, understand who we are, but need relationship with other people, it comes out in so many different ways. So I'm gonna take this on a little, little bit of a heart tour um, through ways that our, our anxious presence often comes out. For starters, follow the strong emotions. Where do your strong emotions come out? Anger, outbursts, accusations, yelling, hypersensitivity, deep fear, where we try to be controlling or manipulative of others. Or maybe on the other end, <coughs> follow the passivity. Where do you find yourself withdrawing or accommodating? Where do you, you harbor kind of a, a quiet bitterness or resentment toward others? Where, where are we fearful of, of rocking the boat? We don't want to mess with the status quo because what would be on the other side of that would just be, you know, it's too daunting. The height of an anxious presence is requiring certain circumstances, reactions, and outcomes in order for us to be okay. I'll say it one more time because I think this is so necessary for us to, to kind of get our, our, our minds around where we see it in our own lives, where we see it in our culture. The height of an anxious presence is requiring certain circumstances, reactions, and outcomes in order for us to be okay. And when we're not okay, that's where the anxiety comes out sideways. So a few more questions for us. How much time do you find yourself spending doing these things? Wondering if someone likes you? Anticipating others' reactions? Worrying about an email or a text that you sent or you are thinking about sending? Excessively thinking about what you should be doing and scolding yourself for not doing enough. Imagining worst case scenarios. In, in relationships, where do you find yourself avoiding people that you think don't like you or they disagree with you? What about apologizing when you don't need to? Overly asking for reassurance from others going along with something that you disagree with in order to keep things calm? What about engaging in downward comparison? Just saying like, at least I'm not like him or her or them, I'm better than them. Using substances or obsessions to find peace. Seeking praise and recognition from others. Chasing cultural definitions of success. Where do you struggle to tolerate it when people around you are in distress? 
where you try to control or direct others in order to calm yourself down? Or do you insist that, that other people use your thinking instead of having their own thinking? Or where do you absor- absorb other people's thinking in order to find security? Or do you pull away relationally or conversationally out of a concern for what might happen? Or what about some of the, the internal dialogue, the messages that can run through our minds? Uh, my relationship will get better if she stops doing that. Now, I'm exhausted because people just expect too much of me. Now, I lack confidence because my dad was too critical of me growing up. Now, my relationships have failed because I'm simply unlovable. I, I, I spend a few minutes on this because I want us to feel the gravity of how pervasive anxiety is in our relationships. How pervasive it is for for all of us as individuals. We may not see it as that. We may not name it as that. But as we begin to get honest and allow the light to shine in these areas and say, yeah, I'm I'm feeling something. And it's it's actually not not what God has designed me for. He's actually designed me for a different way of being. But, But to recognize how expansive this is, that we see it in our homes. We see it in our closest relationships. We see it in our friendships. We see it in our workplaces, we see it at school, we see it in neighborhoods, we see it in the, if you can call it dialogue, that happens so often on social media around different areas of politics or policy. We see this anxiety come out sideways, damage relationships, harm people, and it is not the heart of God of what he has for humanity. And what we see everywhere was also the case in Jesus' day. That's why we're, we're looking at John 7, probably a number of places we could have, we could have gone to, but in, in John 7, it, it captures some of the, the anxious environment that Jesus was stepping into. And to go back to Mark Sayers, he said, the story of the Bible is the story of the return of God's presence. So if we feel the anxiety because of the absence of God's presence, what God has done in Jesus is to, to re-enter in, through that chasm. He steps back in and we are marked by anxiety and sin and confusion and brokenness and division and he enters in willingly, connected to the voice of the Father, knowing who he is as a person who would speak truth and love in order to bring healing and renewal to the world. It's precisely what he did. He didn't retreat from it. He didn't have these outbursts around it, but he entered in and stayed connected for the sake of its renewal. So I want us to see in this text how Jesus interacted or how he stepped into the different relational um, anxious systems. So if you have, a, have your Bible with you, be closing, flip it back open. We'll be working through portions of uh, the first half of John 7. And first I want us to see there in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the word Jews there, this is used a little bit more technically. This is kind of the, the Jewish religious leaders in that community. Uh, he, you know, in, in Judea, they had a little bit more uh, sway. And so in that environment, Jesus is like, hey, I know that ultimately where I'm going is the cross. Like I, that, that's where this mission is headed, but it's not yet. And so, so he was keeping on pace with the voice of the Father, with the leading of the Father. And he's like, it's not time for me to go down there. I'm kind of keeping away from that region. I'm going where where I have a little bit of semi-protection under Herod. And, and you have this group of religious leaders 
who, who were marked by a love for power, prestige, status, recognition from their community. And so, so much of their, their work and their leadership was trying to maintain that. It's like, hey, we're, yes, we've got the law. We're going to be the guardians of the law. But then we're going to add some, some extra demands on top of that that we feel like we can kind of keep and, and kind of keep the rest of the people beneath us uh, because of, of what we're able to perform in morally. But they were so threatened by anyone who would come up and, and try to, uh, to, to rock the status quo. And so here comes Jesus, this gifted teacher who's doing miracles, who's gaining a following. And they feel deeply threatened to the point of like, we, we want to kill him. But we must get him off the scene because it's disrupting the very things that we, we want that make us who we are. So he's interacting with these religious leaders. But then, turns in verse two, <coughs> we see the brothers. We see Jesus' biological brothers. Look at me in verse two. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify to it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So here are the brothers. There, it says there in the text, John tells us, like they, they later became believers, but at this point, they're like not really trusting Jesus as he came. They're like, hey, our brother does cool stuff. Like people seem to kind of like him for the most part. Um, and if, if this is going to work out and make our family look good and we can kind of ride the coattails of our brother, this is the place to do it. Like the feast is happening. The Jews are gathering. All these people are coming. He, here is the stage to go do your miracles and do your teaching and kind of wow the masses. You know, if he's looking for the platform and the book deal and for the next interview and like gain the following, this was the chance for Jesus to do it. And he's like, no, you, you missed the timing of the father. Your time is always here because what you're after is validation and approval. You want people to like you. You want people to, to kind of sing your praises because you're connected to me. You're the brother of, of Jesus, the, the rabbi, the prophet guy who's like doing cool stuff. And, and you can kind of like benefit from that being a part of the same family. It's like you've, you've missed it. You've missed the heart of God. Don Carson puts it this way. Their alignment with the world means they know nothing of God's agenda. They do not listen to his word, do not recognize it when it comes. They cannot perceive the word incarnate before them. They're divorced from God's kairos, his divine appointments. And so any time will do. All appointments that ignore God's kairos are in the eternal scheme of things equally insignificant. So here the, the brothers are, they're after their own recognition, their own kind of approval rating to go up. And so they see the opportune time for that and totally miss the timing that God has for them. And Jesus is like, not going. And then I love it in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Jesus is like, hey, whether I go or not, I'm not controlled by your agenda. I'm keeping in step with the voice of the Father where he's leading me to go. And so I don't, I don't have to operate according to your timeline. He does it with love, he does it with grace, but he's also okay not doing what they expect of them. 
And then third, the crowd and the people. Look at me in verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. For fear of the Jews. So the Jews, these religious leaders, uh, so much of the life of the people, kind of the, the masses of that culture and that society, were dependent upon those, the relatively small number of people, with, with power. Uh, provisionally, but also morally. And, and, and religiously, like before God, like they had the ability to keep people away from the temple and to not receive the same blessings. And they were, they were the kind of the ones pulling the levers on that society. And so out of fear of the Jews, we're like, well, if they don't like him, then is it okay to like them? Maybe we should even talk about him because they don't like the, the fact that he's getting popular. So they, 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 they don't want to, to kind of uh, create this disequilibrium that would lead to them being pushed out to the margins or further. There's a longing for security and comfort. How often is this what drives us? You know, we just want kind of things to be okay. Maybe they're not perfect, but they're good enough. Like we're surviving, we're doing okay. I don't want to say the hard thing. I don't want to say what's obvious or what's true because I don't know how they're going to respond. And then what, I, what do I do about that? That's similar to what, what, the, what the masses, what the crowds are doing here. They're like, let's not, let's not get too honest about our opinions about Jesus. This may ter- not turn out well for us. So here's Jesus. Here's Jesus entering into this anxious culture where you've got the pockets of people who are kind of working around different values and different systems and and kind of like tucking things away and keeping it hidden, but also like presenting in the right kinds of ways. And Jesus comes in and he's like, yeah, I'm going to go up to the feast, but not according to your timeline. Comes up to the feast in the middle of the feast, goes to the place where a lot of people can hear him and he begins to say some hard things. He says it with love. He says it with compassion. He says it with a longing for people to come to trust him and to know their father. But he says things that would create some disruption. So he begins to, to point out an inconsistency amongst the, the religious leaders and the religious community. He's like, hey, y'all want to kill me because I healed a guy on the Sabbath and he picked up his mat and walked home. You, you, you so miss the heart of God. You so miss love God, love neighbor. Everything else hangs upon these. And you're getting so detailed. You, you don't even keep consistent with this. If, if, a, if a baby boy is born and on the eighth day, the eighth day for circumcision would be on the Sabbath, guess what? You're okay with that superseding your Sabbath laws and saying, yep, we're, we're still gonna perform the work of, of circumcision. How much more if I make a whole person whole? If, if I renew his whole body, how much more is that cause for, for celebration, for gratitude, and to, to, to relativize the details around Sabbath law? It's like you, you, you're, you're judging by appearance in order to maintain the game. You're not judging with right judgment. And it's keeping you trapped. It's keeping you enslaved in this anxiety. So what Jesus was able to, to provide for the world can be called a non-anxious presence. What one that is differentiated, that, that, that he knows who he is, why he was there, what he was called to say and to do, and he's able to stay connected to other people in a way that's marked by love and truth. I appreciate Ruth Haley Barton's definition of differentiation. Differentiation is the ability to define a self while staying connected to others. Define a self, I, I, I know who I am, 
As followers of Jesus, we know who we are because of whose we are, the, the one who has, has saved us and loved us and brought him to himself. But that doesn't create, you know, cause us to, to then retreat from relationship. We're able to stay present in relationship, to navigate what's in front of us. Said a little bit differently, we can understand a non-anxious presence is being willing to speak the truth with genuine love, staying present with people, and accepting the cost of disruption. So we speak the truth. True things need to be spoken with one another. So, so much the, the relational strife exists because we don't say true things that would actually be good for other people to hear. But we do it with genuine love. We, we don't need to do it heartlessly or as jerks or like thoughtlessly. Like consider the timing and the tone and the word choice. Like we want to be people who are marked by love. We're also people marked by truth. But we do that staying present with people you know, there is a way to kind of like drop bombs on people and be like, hey, love you, here's a, here's a hard thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over here and like deal with the aftermath of it. It's like, no, we're, we're staying in relationship with people. When Jesus came in, he stayed connected all the way to the cross. So we stay connected and we, we're willing to accept the cost of disruption because when, when we do this, when we say true things with love, it does create disruption. We, we, we grow comfortable. The experts will say that any family system, any relational system, it operates based on typical patterns, typical ways of doing things. So we, even if they're not very good or healthy, we get comfortable with them. And a lot of times we'll choose comfort over the, the good. As soon as you start showing up and you, you break from that pattern and say something different, unexpected, challenges the status quo, it creates this ripple effect in that system that must come if there's going to be healing, if there's going to be renewal. And this is what we see in the ministry of Jesus. He comes in, he speaks the truth with genuine love, staying connected to people, accepting in himself the cost of disruption, and he accepted the cost all the way to the cost of his own life. He's like, he created so much disruption, they're like, we, we want to get rid of you. We, we are going to plot to deceitfully kill you. He says, I will receive it. I'll accept it. Because I want to bring healing and renewal to the world, that's precisely why I've come. But we should accept, expect that this is the way that Jesus operates. He disrupts before he mends. This is a lengthier quote, but I, I think it's, it's really compelling and drives at this point. Uh, written about 150 years ago by guy Abraham Kuyper. Consider what an immigrant does when he tries to create a peaceful existence for his family in a place that he has never visited before. All that he sees around him is forest, primeval woods where the solemn stillness has a semblance of peace for him. But he does not embrace that kind of purpose, purposeless peace at all. Far from it. In order to create the sort of peace, peaceful habitation that he wants, he has to disturb the existing solitude of the forest. He has to transform everything around him in a great drama of destruction. Even then, the desired peace doesn't come. The bare ground must first be turned over. The tree stumps and their roots burned. Trenches dug for foundations and pits scooped out to yield their lime. Eventually, the walls of a dwelling are erected and the floors are laid. A shelter from seasonal winds appears. And only after all this do the welcoming living quarters that offer him the desired peace and quiet eventually emerge. So why shouldn't Jesus take the same approach? 
Why should he have to honor the semblance of peace found among humanity that is similar to that in the primeval forest? Why shouldn't he first burn off the nettles and thistles of envy and greed? Why, sh- why would you think that it conflicts with his calling if he first has to swing his axe against the roots of the towering tree trunks of pride and self-righteousness? In order to give us that sacred peace then, his peace, he must intentionally dare to shatter any existing peace since it really has no right to exist at all. This is at the very heart of the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus coming into the world. Uh, The one who was so rooted in the love of the Father came into this anxious world and said, I'm I'm gonna speak truth with genuine love for the healing of the world, but it's gonna create disruption. Disruption that he said, I'm willing to bear. I'll bear it in my own body. I'll bear it upon the cross. I'll have my body broken open and my blood poured out for the sake of the world. But this must happen if there's going to be renewal, if there's going to be peace established. He had to accept that upon himself. And that's what allows us, that rupture is what allows us to enter into the fold, enter into relationship with God, was Jesus' willing willingness to have a non-anxious presence in the world. And this is our Lord, the Lord who saves us, the Lord who is, has brought us into saving relationship with God, and is also the one who says, come and follow me. Come follow my way of life because this is true life. This is the path toward joy, the, the path that, that God actually has made for humanity. And so I want, I want to look at six areas of attentiveness for us. If and as we want to we take up this call to follow Jesus and being healed in the anxiety to be a means of healing in the world, six areas for us. First one is this, patterns. Discern your relational and responsive patterns. We all have them. Every relationship, every system, every individual, we all have the things we kind of naturally go back to over and over again. We, we cannot change what we don't identify. We can't grow in the things that we don't name and shine a light on. Second, interior. Pay attention to what's going on inside of you. It is so easy to start pointing the finger and be like, ah, I know what's going on with you and kind of how you're responding, how that's creating problems and all of that. There's time and space to get to that part of it. Start with what's going on inside of ourselves. Can I begin to feel those feelings and name them for what they are? What's, What's the nature of this anxiety? You know, try... Try not going toward your, your, your natural kind of go-to reaction and feel what's on the other side of that and invite Jesus into it. And it's, it, it's deeply disruptive, but it's a means toward genuine healing. Third, movement. Learn to observe the movement of anxiety in the relational system. So this, this corresponds a lot with um, the exercise for this week in the workbook. If you guys didn't grab one, there's, it's online or there's, I think there's some copies left in the back. Um, but the one by Steve Cuss, The Four Spaces of Anxiety. Um, he, he talks about how there's anxiety in each individual that we're trying to navigate. There, there's uh, anxiety in the relational space between us and another person. There's anxiety in the other person themselves that we may see expressions of we don't fully really know. And then there's anxiety in the system kind of outside of us, you know, with, with people around us. And anxiety moves throughout systems naturally. That's what it naturally does. Until someone is able to be a non-anxious presence and absorb that and give something different. 
But we have to discern, we have to see how, how does it move? How, do, how does it travel? How's that getting transferred over? How did that conversation lead over to this outburst here? And that actually led to this decision. And that led to, you start paying attention and you begin seeing the different directions of the anxiety. Fourth, responses. Choose your response rather than slide into reactivity. Again, we all have our reactions. It's so easy just to, to go back to it. It's like, ah, that's what mom did, that's what dad did, that's, that's kind of what our family did, that's what we did when, that's how we handled conflict, and this is just what you do when you're frustrated, you know, you just kind of leave it aside for a while, you come back, everything's fine, we're like, oh, you just like duke it out and you say horrible things to each other, uh, but then you forget about it and move on. It's like, whatever we've experienced, if it is not in line with the heart and the way of Jesus, it does not please him and it doesn't have to continue. He longs for something better for us. It is, it is hard work. It is not easy for us to push into these spaces. But it's part of following Jesus. It's part of, of, of being agents of renewal in the world. It's part of experiencing the peace of Jesus that he has for us. It's moving into these dark areas, getting honest with them. And with this in particular, it's starting to, to shift what our responses are. But the only way we can do this takes us to number five, Voice. Learn to hear the voice of your father amidst the chaos. So many messages are running through our minds and hearts almost all the time. Things that have been said to us, things that we just kind of learn over time, things we believe about ourselves. We must learn, especially at those moments of, of greatest kind of chaos, what is the voice of God your father saying to you? It's a voice of identity. It's a voice of truth. It's, it's a voice of healing. And over time, we can learn to, to be more receptive to it and say, Let, I, want, I want the volume turned up on his voice. That, 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 for that to be the most dominant reality of what I hear, especially in those moments where we feel it's just upheaval. And then sixth, presence. Recognize that God is with you. God is with you in the pain. He is with you in the mess, in those moments where, where there are just fireworks of emotions going off. After you, you just said the thing or did the thing that you did again, that you wish you didn't, you're like, I don't know how to break from this pattern. He is with you in that. Or maybe the thing was said or done to you and you're like, you're back in this space. He is with you in that. We serve a God he is so beautifully omnipresent and so particular with his presence that he's able to enter in by his spirit with each and every one of us. He knows the particulars of your story. He knows the pain points. He knows what's been said to you. He knows the longings that you have. He, he knows your own sin, your own brokenness, the, the patterns that you have. He knows all of it and he's able to be with you in it. Recognize his presence. I was meeting with a, a leader in our city, Marlene Allen, um, just a handful of weeks ago, and she said the two questions that she just runs through her mind and what she teaches so often is, Jesus, where are you? And what do you have for me? I've started to, to, to adopt those and actually pass them on to our boys as well. Just like, no, no matter how difficult or chaotic the moment is, Jesus, where are you? It, it's saying, I, I want to learn to see you. I want to learn to recognize your presence with me. And what do you have for me? What do you have for me in this moment? Is it to weep? Is it to say something? Is it to remain quiet? Is it to pull back for a minute? Is it to enter in further? Is it to take a deep breath? Is it to run to scripture? 
Is it to put on a song? Is it to call a friend? What, what do you have for me? What's the, what's the next step in, step in the midst of this? But recognize that God is with you and stick around to see what might, he might do. If we retreat in the midst of the anxiety and the difficulty, we will not experience the healing and the renewal that we long for, that, that this world longs for. I want to read one more quote uh, from, from Mark Sayers, and then I've got a few questions for us to just sit with for a couple minutes. There we go. Sayers says this, despite our ideology of individualism, our emotional reactivity and our social, social natures drive us toward others. As the culture becomes reactive, we begin to, to act in herd-like ways. A mob mentality takes over. The society lowers itself to pleasing and not offending its most emotionally immature and unhealthy members, who then end up dictating the health of the culture. We must break with the dominant emotional reactivity, toxicity, and blame displacement. Our obsessions with the quick fix and low pain threshold ensures that few can push through the isolation of breaking from social hurting and reactivity and the inevitable backlash of the emotionally regressing environment. And then get this, to bring renewal, we must persist, taking a stand against toxicity, embracing the social isolation that comes with being an agent of renewal. I've become so convinced just by looking more at the life of Jesus just recently, a group of us read through the, the Gospel of John in one sitting. And what stood out to me that I'd never really seen before was he was able to navigate all of these difficult relational spaces because he was so in tune with the love of the Father. He, he knew precisely who he was, and he was listening to his voice. The, the works that he saw his Father doing, that's what he was doing. Where the Father was taking him, that's where he was going. Whatever the next step was the Father was leading him into, that's what he wanted to pursue because he was so rooted and grounded in the love of the Father. And this is the invitation that we are given because we are made brothers of Jesus. We've been brought into this family, this new spiritual eternal family by the person and work of Jesus. And he says, come and, and walk this path, walk this way. I wanna heal your anxiety. I wanna heal your relationships. I wanna bring healing to the world through a non-anxious presence that is able to, to receive and then show the love of the Father in all the spaces that we're called to be in. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.